I'm Will Rowan, and I'm the Facility Operations and System Manager. Anybody who says they're afraid of nothing is definitely lying to you. I have been around anywhere from 8 o'clock to 2 in the morning, uh, being the only person in here and having to lock it up. I can definitely hear some strange noises going on. I think the one that comes foremost to my mind is I was about five minutes away from finishing up closing the building and locking everything up and I'm going down the stairs and I just hear these series of chain rattles happening and it was coming from the second floor and I'm like there is nothing up here to make that noise what is going on I'll get that occasional wind gust like where did that come from and then I'll look over my shoulder and it's it's really weird we used to have a statue of a little boy in Gallery 5, sat on a chair. He looked okay, but his head was a little too small for his body. Well, whenever we would close at night, you know, we would turn off the light and our emergency fire lights would come on and it's this eerie red glow that would show up and it was only above his head. Because you're like, what is going on? What demonic manifestation is showing up in here? <laughs> Fear is something you definitely have to handle, but it's something you should not let overcome you. You need to be in control of your fear, but you need to acknowledge that it's there. You're listening to Binder. I'm Ray McManus. All right, well, we are here on Halloween, um, and I don't know what's more scary. The holiday itself, kids running around your neighborhood at night, or being in the storage closet with Drew, who is out of his booth. Once again, I think we created a monster because he likes it in this space, I think, with me. Hey, Drew. Hey, I am alive, much like Frankenstein's monster. You know, Halloween is my favorite holiday, Ray. Really? Yeah, no, really. Uh, it always was as a kid, especially when I was like a punk awful kid, because, you know, it's, it's all about the tricks. I mean, mm, the treats yeah. were great, too, but sure, sure. Uh, but I was definitely I was definitely pro tricks on Halloween, got into a lot of trouble, never got caught by my parents, but got into a lot of trouble. And so it's always been it's always been near and dear to my heart. You know, I think it's cool because Halloween is it's the only holiday that promotes fear. So I can't yeah. like I mean, can you think of a different holiday that like really promotes that concept president's day oh yeah okay fair <laughs> no i mean i think I, I think what's what's wild about you know a lot of holidays with the exception of things like valentine's day mother's day you know those are a lot of greeting card kind of holidays but most of our holidays have this sort of blend of pagan and christian sort of traditions rolled into one and, and halloween is purely a pagan holiday and one that goes on for you know has been going on for centuries um, and so much of what we use today for you know halloween to the jack-o-lanterns and the things that we are doing to to scare each other and and playing these tricks on each other are so irish you know it's such an irish holiday so so for me i've always appreciated that fact but growing up where i grew up man there weren't a whole lot of houses to trick or treat on on a dirt road um <laughs> but uh but there but there's something truly unique about that particular holiday of, of this idea that you know all the spirits are are you know there, there's this unrest going on and, and as a kid you know we're excited by that right we're excited by the things that scare us you know right down to going out into the woods at night or haunted houses and 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 just random things that can jump out and scare you yeah i mean i think um i think to a certain extent like we want to be scared but we want to do it in a way that's safe right like mm -hmm. we don't want to be scared when we're not ready to be scared right, right. like there's a difference between going to a scary movie and going to a scary place that you didn't know was going to be scary right 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 um and that happens a lot in art i always think of francisco goya you know the guy who did uh Saturn devouring his children. It's just a horrific image. Oh, like, yeah. And I think that's what's cool about art is it gives us these opportunities to embrace that fear mm -hmm. and take it on in a way that we wouldn't necessarily want to do in our everyday lives. Sure, sure. Because it's, it's controlled, right? I mean, so if you think about fear, 
is a motivator. Um, you know, it's what kind of goads us into doing things or not doing things. And if we're able to experience it safely, we get a lot more benefit out of it, right? And so when I think about, you know, any kind of art that, that, that depicts that visceral human reaction to something that is traumatic or something that is, is, you know, dare I say fearful, mm. um, you know, we're able to vicariously experience it without having to physically be in that space. That's a win-win, right? So we learn from it. We're goaded by it, but we're also protected in the fact that we're not in that painting. It's kind of like we like to be on roller coasters, right? I mean, you know, it's just something about the feeling of flying, you know, face first down a hill, but we're completely strapped in. Uh, we're in a, a, a fairly safe environment. And so that fear that we have is, is, turns into absolute joy and exhilaration. But if we were just thrown off a mountain going 60 miles an hour down, I don't think we would have the same sort of reaction, right? First of all, I want to say, have you ever been on a wooden coaster? I think you're going to take back that concept of the safe coaster. If you're yeah, no, I, yeah. Growing up in, a, in yeah, those, those, the early roller coasters and the wooden tracks, that's a little bit of a different experience where you feel like you're going to fall out of that thing any moment. You know? um, but now, I mean, you know, they can, they can strap you in and literally you can feel like you're flying. That's just wild to me that, you know, because if, we were literally flying. I mean, I, I would think that would be absolutely terrifying because we got to land. <laughs> I mean, like right now I can fly, uh, but my landing sucks. Yeah, I was I was actually uh, I asked uh, somebody at the front desk earlier, how do we know for sure that we can't fly? Gravity finds a way of reminding us. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You know, famously, anyone who's ever seen your headshot knows that you fear no art. That's right. But uh, is there any art that uh, promotes fear that you find interesting? I mean, I think when it comes to art itself, I don't fear it um, because there, there's something that is, that, that's always magical that takes place with, with all art, um, whether it's a bowl, whether it's the painting of a head, you know, that's been lobbed off or a childlike sculpture that's sitting on a chair. There's so much work that goes into it, so much intentionality that that's being put in there that, you know, I'm more swept away by, by the bravery of an artist mm. um, to, to be able to put that work together, to put himself or herself into that work to create something like that. And so I, I, I'm more celebrating it than I am afraid of it. But it's probably because I think if you turn away from art and look at reality, that's a hell of a lot more scary to me. Um, so, I mean, I can say fear no art, but everything else should scare the hell out of you. So fear, fear all evil, but no art, basically. Right. But it, but it goes into, I, I think, kind of the way I am now. Um, you know, when I was younger, I, I wasn't really afraid of much. Mm. But that might be the case with a lot of us when we're, we're young. It's, it wasn't until we start reaching certain age plateaus where you begin to hear stories, right? You know, I was still a kid when, you know, the supposed razor blade in the apples, you know, at Halloween or, or in the candy, right? You know, and parents going through every, every kid's candy. And, um, I actually vividly remember as a kid, because my dad worked at a hospital, they took my candy bag into the MRI and like X-ray rated or whatever to make sure there was no razor blades like in it because they had access to do so, right? Uh, which is insane. And I probably should not have eaten that candy afterwards because it had been X-rayed. It explains so much. Yeah. Um, so, but, but you know, what's funny is that as you get older, you realize, Oh man, my parents weren't going through the candy, making sure it was safe. They were picking out the ones they wanted and then putting them back in the bag. You know, that's what I was doing. <laughs> to be fair, yeah, I never saw the X-ray. Maybe they just right. told me they were X-raying. Right. So, so I think you know, you, you hear about them, but you don't you don't process that stuff when you're a kid. You know, you don't process it when you're younger. Of course, you feel like you're going to live forever, and if you're not, then you know, leave a beautiful corpse. But then I don't know. I had kids, and then. Suddenly, I'm scared of everything, right? I'm scared of spiders. I'm scared of heights. I'm scared, you know, anything that can possibly do any kind of harm to them. It's gut wrenching. So now it's, I feel like there's, there's a lot more out there that scares me than doesn't. And so when we have an opportunity to kind of celebrate it and embrace it, it's therapeutic in a way. Um, I think I agree. And actually, uh, this is a perfect segue, right? 
you know, you say that you weren't afraid of anything as a child, but no, no, that's not true because there's one thing that you've talked about on the show over and over and over again, and that's snakes. Yeah. <laughs> and so today I brought you a new game and I'm calling this one Snake Journey. That was scary. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I've picked three pieces from the collection and I'm going to show you them in a second. Each of them involves a snake. Mm. And what I want you to do is I want you to describe what you're looking at and then tell me why you think the snake's there. Okay. Pretty simple. You know, what does it represent? Why, why, why a snake? Okay. Um, And so I got them right here. I'm going to pull them out right now. You can hear it on mic. This is very official how I do things. These printouts, uh, we were running out of toner, so they're sort of in color, sort of not in color. Uh, sorry. <laughs> we're a nonprofit, ladies and gentlemen. All right, here's the first one. So, Ray, what are we looking at? All right, we are looking at what looks to be silver, silver statuette of a. Looks like a fat kid um, on his knees on on this base on a silver base. Got little claw pedestal or claw, little claw feet on the bottom of the thing. And at first, it looks like he is crushing something that's underneath him. And the fact that he's naked really kind of probably scares me the most to like what he could possibly be crushing. But you look up into his his right hand that he has raised. And I see the snake wrapped around his head like he's about to just bash the you-know-what out of this thing. Any guess who the child might be? Uh, do I'm going to guess... Um, Think Greece. Mm, Greece. Um, John Travolta. Correct. No. <laughs> no. It's Hercules. Is that fat baby Hercules? It is fat baby Hercules. I, some people call him Heracles, but same guy. You yeah, know? yeah. He was Greek demigod, mm-hmm. had a Disney movie. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you said Disney movie, I remember. Yeah. That. See, there yeah. you go. Um, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And um, so, you know. I have no idea who the snake's supposed to represent in this. Okay. Um, but well, knowing that it's Hercules, one could speculate perhaps um, that um, the snake is evil. That's a pretty solid speculation there. Uh, you know, this is actually kind of a famous moment actually seen in the Disney movie, if you'll, if for those at home who remember. So Hercules' dad was Zeus. You know, he's kind of like the boss god of Greek gods. And... The reason that Hercules is a demigod is because Zeus actually had him with a human. Zeus had a habit of turning himself into animals and making babies. Right. This is well, historically, <laughs> famously, one of these examples. And his wife, Hera, she wasn't really a big fan of that, as you might guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so she really, really, really didn't like Zeus from the get. And so this is actually from right after he was born. She sent snakes into his crib to poison him. But because he was super strong, he just strangled them to death. Mm. And so basically in this, snakes are exactly what you would think they are, right? Like they're something to be afraid of, but something to overcome. Oh, yeah. I've pulled the same exact move before. Just got naked and grabbed a snake and just smashed it. Is that how you do your yard work? That's that's how I kill all of them. (laughs) (laughs) When, When my wife says, Ray, there's a snake in the backyard, you know, I mean, you know, it's like, can't get my clothes off fast enough. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So moving on to the next object. I'm going to bring it over to you right now. All right. Okay. All right. There you go. Um, So this actually, this is a print and it just went on view today. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's it's in the art of Elizabeth Catlett from the collection of Samilla Lewis. Um, but the print's actually made by Allison Saar, who was kind of a contemporary of Catlett's. Mm, okay. All right. Um, can you guess what it's called? Um, Man Bite Snake. You're, 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 in the, you're in the right ballpark. It's, it's actually just Snake Man. Snake Man. Okay. All right. Well, it is. I mean, it's interesting. It is just the top part of his torso, like from the breast up to his forehead. Um, there's, after that, it's missing. Um, no eyeballs. 
that's kind of scary. And yes, he has a, a, a snake in his mouth, although the snake doesn't look phased all that much by it because he's lean, he's turning back towards the man. And it's a very colorful snake, orange with little yellow dots all over it. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, Ray. I don't really know what the snake's supposed to represent in this picture, um, but I did do some research on it. So I do have something to give you. I, I promise I wouldn't just hand you that for nothing. So... Sar, the artist, she actually made another sculpture that's the exact same form. So the same thing just as a sculpture. And that one was called Snake Charmer, which she said was based on an actual performer she met. So that kind of made me look into snake charming as an activity because I really I, I didn't really know anything about it. Did you like aside from like movies, did you really know anything about snake charming? I know. Um, I mean, I've seen people messing around with snakes and getting them to to do certain things like to get them to basically just lay limp, um, which is kind of wild. But it, what I found out later on in life was that it was a hognose snake. And that's one of the things that hognose snakes will do. Huh. They play dead. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't I, know that. But I thought this guy was magic. I mean, like, I was like, holy crap. He made a snake go to sleep, you know? And well, and like, honestly, a lot of uh, what happens in snake charming is kind of the same. It's it's not, they're not hypnotizing the snake. Right. I was pretty disappointed to find that out. Right, yeah. In fact, like, they play music during it, but the snake can't hear the music anyway. It doesn't have any ears. Right. <laughs> That's right. So, it turns out it's actually the object that they play the music with that is what's doing most of the work for them. And that's because the snake is afraid of the person. Mm-hmm. And it's afraid of the object. And so it's standing up like that out of fear. So it itself is exhibiting fear in that instance. Right. Um, which is, you know, the old adage is like, they're more afraid of you than you are of them. But like, it's really true when it comes to snake charming, like they are terrified of the snake charmer. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, some of them, a lot of them do it ethically, but some unfortunately haven't in the past. And there's been some really kind of awful animal abuse cases involving snake charmers, like removing the fangs and sewing the mouth shut so they won't bite mm. them mm. while performing. And like, obviously that means that they aren't long for this world if they're doing things like that. Uh, yeah. It's kind of hard for them to get around if their mouths have been so shut. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I mean like snake handlers, for instance, um, you know, in certain, um, you know, we'll just say fundamentalist kind of uh, religious gatherings that's you know one of the old sort of tricks a lot of them would do is milk you know the 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 fangs uh, before they picked them up and handled them so if they did bite them it would be non-lethal but i you know what i like about this one though is the, the snake in the mouth i mean you know that to me is 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 very symbolic right mm -hmm. i mean if you think about you know what what snakes represent and the things that we say um and you know there there can be venom in our words and 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 that sort of thing that in this particular case because the snake isn't coming out of his mouth but the fact that the mouth is grabbing it it's a little bit more empowering i like that yeah i really think it changes that power dynamic especially when considering the first image we looked at to this you know right exactly um, like i think in both of those the person is the one in charge you know right. but uh the relationship changes quite a bit versus mm. uh because i don't think the th snake is a threat in that image no yeah the snake doesn't the snake the snake doesn't seem to be a threat to the man um and the man doesn't seem to be threatening the snake Our third piece is actually, you can just flip the page. It's on the back of that one. And because the toner was really running out there, I'm going to give you the actual name of this piece to make it a little easier. So you might recognize it. It was in Modern Rhythms, which is what you talked about the last time you yep, were here. I remember. Um, and it's by Romare Bearden. And the title is Dreams of Exile, Green Snake. You know what, what's wild here is, um, you know, no pun intended, because this, this, first of all, this image is very colorful. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of animals, you know, and they're, they're sort of, many of them are camouflaged within the landscape. You know, you can see birds, you can see, looks like the eye and the nose of a lion out behind the, the, the bushes there. It looks like a paw around a tree. There's some turtles and pelicans. You know, this, this place could not really truly exist because none of these animals would be in the same spot. But what is amazing is that 
in this, all of the animals are colorful. They all have details, but the snake doesn't. The snake is just dark um, and you can't see any markings. It stands out. It's in the open. And so in in many ways, if if we were to keep on with the sort of stereotype, um, which I think does kind of come from some biblical illusions of the snake being sort of this representative of, of, of evil, of, of something bad, that even though you're in this beautiful space, that all the animals they don't have looks on their faces like they're they're terrified or they're scared of anything. But knowing that that snake is present makes you think that something bad maybe is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think I think your reading of it is probably like very much the literal interpretation, which I think you're right. You know, especially with like the name Dreams of Exile, that definitely like screams like Garden of Eden, you know, being right. kind of cast out. I, I did try to research some stuff about it. There wasn't a lot to find. I mean, I did often see it um, listed as religious art. Mm -hmm. So I do think that that was probably a big part of what Romero Bearden was pulling from when he like created that piece. But uh, I got really interested in the name itself, uh, especially the fact that it used the, used the word dreams. And so because I couldn't really find much in the piece, instead, I just read a bunch about dream interpretation with green snakes, uh, which, you know, questionable science there. But I did find like a lot of consensus, actually, believe it or not. Um, and what, what I found really surprising is it was mostly positive. Like if you mm. dream of a green snake, a lot of times they would attribute it to uh, personal transformation or growth or good fortune or basically just positive changes across the board. Like it's like one of the things you want to see in a dream is a green snake, which is not how I think we would usually think about right, that. Right. I mean, they're not green snakes usually aren't like venomous. They're not usually a danger to you. You know what I mean? Like yeah. not but, here anyway. Right. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. There are definitely dangerous green snakes out there, but not in South Carolina. No, no. You know, I've, I've wrestled with it, but honestly, you know, and like now I'm not as afraid of, of snakes. If I see one, I, I don't rush out to kill it. Um, you know, let it, do its thing, which is mainly just trying to get the hell out of the way. I mean, but, you know, when I think about, well, what, what informs that fear? I think one of the things that informs it, obviously, is, is how we're kind of brought up to think about the snakes being evil. And, you know, the fact that they have no arms and no legs, and yet they still move. The fact that they can open their mouths and swallow things that are, you know, gigantic, you know, to them. But, you know, like even, even a garter snake, if I saw one, I'd be like, oh, wow, that's a garter snake, but I'm still not going to be compelled to pick it up. Like, I know it's non-venomous. I know it, chances of it biting you is, is, is pretty slim. And even if it does, it's going to feel like, like a lizard maybe biting you or something. But I just, I just can't get past it. Right. You know, and like when I have friends that have, you know, huge, you know, boa constrictors and stuff. And as long as they're staying in their little aquarium terrarium thing, I'm, I'm okay with it. But they start bringing that thing out, you know, and you want to hold my snake, you know, I'm like, yes, no, <laughs> don't. <laughs> I um, mean, well, I do have, I do have one more thing for you today. So. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it was too, it, I didn't have enough budget to get a snake. Uh, I, I thought about it. But. I'm glad you didn't. You know, it's funny though, because I think with, when, when you think about of all the animals that seem to represent the thing that scares us, snakes always become the thing, right? But yet they're the easiest of animals to kill. You know, they're, you know, other than maybe that Anaconda movie that came out, you know, where it took Ice Cube and, and his friends, you know, that's different, right? I mean, I could think of eating a boat, but most snakes, man, they're just on the ground I and mean, you can kill them pretty easy to me. Or walk away from them. Or just, yeah, just <laughs> pretend like they didn't exist, right? But to me, I think like the, the, the animals that, that, you know, are far more terrifying than a snake, right? Like, like a great white shark. I mean, that's pretty terrifying, you know, but there's no mentions of those in the Bible. I guess there was no shark that could climb a tree, um, that could tempt Eve with, with an apple. But really and truly, no animal is really all that scary. But because of human nature, we, we got to beat up some. Um, and you know, it's, you know, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but, but we, you know, it, it, it goes to the fact that like, if I were out in, you know, in a safari and I'm, you know, I've gotten away from my group and I'm on the grasslands and I'm face to face with a lion, I'm going to be scared out of my pants, but I can go to a zoo and see a lion all day long. 
it doesn't scare me at all because there's barriers, there's protection, you know. So it kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier about art, you know. I mean, the fact that we like to be scared as long as it's in a controlled environment. Like we like the we like to be tantalized. We like to feel the feeling of being scared without our lives being in jeopardy. <laughs> Uh, I think earlier, earlier at the start of the show, before you or I were here, uh, Will was on and he kind of talks about the fact that you need to understand fear and not live in fear. Right. Like. Right. Um, yeah. And that is going to be a part of your life, but it doesn't have to be your whole life. Right. Right. No, it can't. And, and, and there's some things about it we can have fun with. But but be mindful of, you know, is it fun just for you? I mean, are you the trickster Drew running around out there toilet toilet, you know, TP in people's houses and and blowing up people's commodes? Maybe. And that's fun. You know, I used to jump out and scare my sister all the time. Like, you know, again, I didn't have much to do. So that was that was pretty much my evenings. <laughs> jump out and scare my sister. It was fun for me. I loved it. I love seeing her face. I love seeing her throw things in the air. I find out much later in life, though, she she tells me that, you know, that kind of messed her up. I mean, like every time she walks into a room, she thinks any moment I'm going to jump out and scare. Um, so I've, I kind of feel a little bit bad about that. But, yeah, I think we can have fun with it, but be mindful of it all at the same time. We can put on our costumes, go to our parties, play tricks on one another because it's just good, clean fun, you know, and realize that there are things out there that that scare us. But if we understand them dare I say, even embrace them, then we can enjoy our lives a little bit more. Ray, can I tell you the thing I'm afraid of? What's that? Uh, that we've gone way over time and I really got to get out of here. But uh, <laughs> thanks for having me. Oh, it was good to see you, Drew. If you thought that was creepy, just wait. We're always taking the things that we're anxious about in the world and making it into horror. Telling ghost stories with Palimpsest after this. Hey y'all, you know who it is. Just thought you might like to know there's more coming soon. You know, more? What? You keep acting like you don't know what I mean. Come on. I'm talking about more exhibitions, more classes, more programs, more concerts, more tours, more art, more podcasts. There's always more at the CMA. See? More. And members get even more than that. More mission, more parties, more benefits than I can name in this ad. In fact, it might be easier if you just go see for yourself. Because if I have to list how much more there is, we'll be here all day. You can see more for yourself on our website, www.columbiamuseum.org. And now, for more of the show. She put down her empty cup with a clatter and stood up, every inch the offended matron. I kept my hands folded in my lap. The knife up my sleeve was very sharp, so I sat very still. I can see it's no use talking to you, she said. One look at your dress is enough to... But then she stopped and put her hand over her heart. Oh my, she said. She was looking towards the window, but her eyes were unfocused. I feel so, so, you should probably sit down, I said. Belladonna makes a lovely tea, but it is hard on the system the first time. Well. I am here today with our special guest, Palimpsest, with Jamie Reidenauer and Haley Henninger. First of all, I just want to say, you know, thank y'all so much for coming down to Columbia. You're in, in, in the Asheville area. You've been doing this podcast now for five years. Um, you are in your fourth season. Mm -hmm. Folks, if you haven't had a chance to listen to Palimpsest, I would highly encourage you to do that and be among 
the half a million, 500,000 downloads already for this podcast, which is amazing. I think some folks are lucky if they have 500 downloads. It goes to show that you guys have a following. People are excited about the next season, and I'm sure people are really excited about your fifth year birthday, which is uh, on Halloween today. Spooky, scary, macabre, gothic, all of these sort of things kind of roll into mm. it. But it's also just damn good storytelling. Um, Thank and, you. and it's told in such a way that you feel like as a listener that you're completely immersed into it. You know, I can see the space. I can see the characters. Of course, a lot of that Haley is the way you are able to use different intonations and different things like that. So you feel what the characters are feeling. These are no small feats, y'all. I mean, and so there's a lot of work into that. And I want to talk about that in a little bit. But first, before we get into that, why this particular genre? What was it about this particular genre that drew you into wanting to do this? It's my favorite genre, like Shirley Jackson, Peter Straub, who just passed away, RIP. Um, that, I mean, that's what I, I grew up a horror fan. I grew up with my mother who was at the show last night was, a, a you know, she let me sit up from age 10 onward to watch the double feature on Florence, South Carolina, late night television, which is always Darren McGavin's night stalker. And then like a Bella Lugosi film or something. Right. I've just, it, it's what I've always wanted to do. And I write novels and I write plays and I'd write Gothic things in other media but uh there's something about audio that just really lends itself to this genre it feels like an old epistolary novel somehow Mm -hmm. yeah for for me i i didn't really grow up straight from the beginning consuming horror but it was probably more so like around adolescence just kind of fell in love more with like just that idea of taking things that are scary or uncomfortable and making them kind of feel like home for Mm. a minute, even just in a contained space, you know, finding a different way to explore those emotions where it's not necessarily negative. Right, right. Which makes a lot of sense when you consider the reality that we live in, right? I mean, that's scary enough. Um, And then you get this opportunity really to go off in an imaginative way, a very safe way, um, and still experience all of the feelings that you would have with it, but knowing that, you know, it's not real, right? Exactly. I mean, you know, or is it? It is. <laughs> <laughs> that too, or is it? <laughs> Last night, one of the things that I kept coming back to was, you know, the old radio serials, mm-hmm. you know, for the most part. I mean, a lot of them are really cheesy, yeah. um, but, you know, just the sound effects going on in the background, yeah. all the different things that to a radio listener at that time, you know, had to sound very real. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, the, the classic. Uh, with, you know, War of the Worlds, you know, freaked out on an entire country because it sounded so real. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things that I loved about the way it is narrated, and this is a blur between what has happened and what is happening, mm-hmm. which, you know, I think really adds to the trauma of the moment. Um, and cooking with Cora, particularly, what was really, truly fascinating was that it comes across as just, you know, Susie Homemaker that you find out, you know, pretty quickly has a delicious dark side, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, dare I say. Um, But I never felt like it once. And and I feel like this way, especially in the seasons when I'm listening to those, I never feel like it's just somebody wrote this and then somebody is reading it and I'm just here to listen. Mm -hmm. That it really does feel like someone has written a story. Somebody wants to tell me this story. And they want to invite me into the story so that I can be a part of it. That's special, y'all. That's more than just, you know, hours and hours of work. That is, that's, that's a talent involved in that. And I think that that has to be part of what is driving the success of Palimpsest. Yeah. That, that is interesting. I love hearing you say that because, you know, from the beginning, when we started doing this, we really latched on to, and I love the the idea of the unreliable narrator mm-hmm. because, you know, you're listening to the story and then there's that point, like you're saying, where you're like, hmm, maybe they're not telling me everything that's actually going on. Um, but yeah, Jamie, I'm not exactly sure how you do that to create that atmosphere. 
But you know, it does play right into our theme of the layers. The layers, on of, layers. Of, yeah. So. yeah. We sit in sort of a you know, there's been a real uh, renaissance of of audio drama over the past ten years or so, mm-hmm. and there's some amazing shows out there that we are just one of. And there's a, a range, and so there are definitely like I started listening to the uh, audio dramas through uh, a podcast called Podcastle, which is fantasy short stories, and they have a sister podcast called Pseudopod, which is horror. And so that's actually my first foray into that. Is Pseudopod did a version of one of my stories with a with, you know they hired an actor. So those are just reading, right? Those are just like I'm here to right. read you a short story, like you're, you're going to a reading. And then there are completely immersive, really amazing audio dramas. My favorite is a British audio drama called Wooden Overcoats. It's like a sitcom. But those are like you're watching a movie, right? So it's, there's, no, there's no narration. There's, you're, just, you're there. It's happening as you're seeing it. There's a lot of characters, a full cast. And I feel like we're sort of in this um, gray area between the two. Mm-hmm. Because we're not, you're right. We're, I, it was important to me that this isn't just, I'm going to read you a story. Right. But we didn't have the budget or manpower to begin with to do like a like fifteen people in a studio with right. with, with immersive surround sound. We're like, well, let's yeah. work with what we got here. Um, right. And I think that this is you know I talk about this in my classes when I teach like Victorian lit or whatever. There are economic and and other kinds of forces that shape art, and what that means is I think I became a better writer because mm. I was like I have to I have to hit this and create this atmosphere. These are the tools that I have, and one of them is. Haley, which is a, a pretty powerful tool. Don't call me a tool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, this is what I've got. And so how do I shape a narrative that uses all that to effectiveness? You know, so that right. doesn't feel like a limitation. It feels like a, something that's a strength. And I love that. I, I love. And then and now we could probably do more. And we do have we have five actors in our birthday episode coming up. But in general, it's just us. And mm-hmm. And I kind of love what we can do with that. So, so Jamie, you grew up in South Carolina. Haley, where, did you grow up in North Carolina? Uh, no, I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania. Northeastern Pennsylvania. I think there's parts of Pennsylvania, I think, that, that are very similar. Of course, you go anywhere around the country. I mean, there, there's a rural and an urban. But there's always this penchant for hauntings. Um, you know, I mean, for lack of a better word. I mean, you know, here in the South, that, I mean, the whole damn place is haunted, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, you know, growing up, that was the, the, the one, the, the ghost story was the one story that you could hear that you would actually learn a few things. Like, you know, you learn that <clears throat> you don't go out into the woods if you hear a noise at night, you know, mm-hmm. you don't ever say, I'll be right back. <laughs> um, you know, you, you know, if, if somebody says, you know, who stole my golden arm, you just haul ass, right. um, you know, but, even more so, like, you know, when um, here in South Carolina, you know, like the, the gray man or um, the ghost of Alice, you know, all of these yeah. things become such a very poignant part of who we are growing up. And so I was just curious if, if you guys had that kind of experience as well. Yeah, for me, not so much. And yeah, like that whole kind of haunted culture does feel more prominent in the South. But for me, I mean, I liked I liked horror movies and I... I'm trying to think if there were really any like real storytelling moments. Like my dad would always tell crazy stories that would freak me out. Um, so he probably had a big part to do with it. Like when we would go, um, we would take vacations in New England and he would always like scare the shit out of me talking about like he would always tell the story about like the bride that walks the beach at night. Oh, yeah. And there was always, he'd be like, and that's the house she lives in and all that. And like, my mom would be like, art, stop. Um, <laughs> but I think for me, more so like the struggle with depression and different like mental health struggles. I love looking at that through a horror lens and mm, kind of that version of the haunting and the way to, you know, embracing it by, by being able to look at it and separate it. I guess that's kind of a, a bit of a stretch and a tangent from what you're um, asking. Actually not. That's amazing. And that's how we approach it is it's important to me that every character I write is already haunted by something. It's not always a one-on-one metaphor like this ghost it means you're, the emotional baggage you're carrying or whatever, although sometimes it is. Horror writing is the same as any writing. If you don't care about the characters, right. then the stakes don't matter. And so it's important to me that every character I create for Haley, I don't start with like, what's the, 
what's the ghost? What's the situation? What's the horror? We start with how is she damaged? What is she dealing with? What is her life like? So that then the character, not the ca- Haley. The character, okay. yeah, yeah, the character. <laughs> Let's figure out how, yeah, how personally yeah. right, right. are you damaged and um, how do we exploit it? <laughs> right. Um, no, and then and then everything kind of pulls from there, you know. Yeah, I heard the same stories you did growing up. I mean, Alice and the Gray Man. We, I mean, my mother. We went to the Polly's Island graveyard to see mm-hmm. Alice's grave. I remember very clearly it being like eleven or twelve, and and going to see the big flat gravestone with Alice's name on it. And we toured the the Hermitage where she, yep, where they tore it down. So yeah, I, I, I loved loved all that stuff. And it's all all of those do what we do, right? They are ways to tell because Alice's ghost is about her being in love with somebody who her parents didn't approve of and then he died and her ring got thrown or or whatever or maybe she i forget which way but it's a story about class right right it's a a story about class in the south and we use those stories to talk about issues that we might not want to talk about head on but Mm -hmm. we can we can Mm -hmm. look at them obliquely through these things and i think that's i mean most of what we consider to be haunted around us is in fact haunted in us mm-hmm. um and and i and i love that about embracing it mm-hmm. um because for better or for worse that is who we are and the more we are willing to embrace that the more we are embracing ourselves yeah. of course now there is much more of an of an acceptance and acknowledgement of that than than there was even 15 or, or 20 years ago right, right. so yeah. um you know because i think when when you talk about horror it's so easy to package into the stereotypes, right? I mean, so there's your vampire fiction, your your zombie fiction, your werewolf stuff, your ghost stories, your slashers, yeah. your slasher mm-hmm. stuff, right? You know, and the, and then of course the psycho thriller and 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 mm-hmm. all of these things. When it's yet, it's like all of these are things that are inside of us. My, my probably the most formative piece of media for me uh, as a writer is Peter Straub's novel Ghost Story. The three moments in that book that sum up everything I do is early in the book, Don Wanderley, the main character, one of the main characters, is having an affair with this woman. And she gets up in the middle of the night and he wakes up and she's standing by the window and he says, what's wrong? And he thinks she says, I saw a ghost. A couple hundred pages later, he realizes she probably said, I am a ghost. And at the end of the novel, through this like hypnosis thing he's doing, where he gets this complete memory retrieval, he realizes she said, you are a ghost. And that move from the outside, something out there, to the thing that I feel like I'm familiar with, but I don't understand, to I am the thing that haunts myself, that is the entirety of what I try to write. I think that is amazing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Peter Stahl was amazing. So, so what do y'all do when you're not um, when you're not working on Palimpsest? I teach. I teach at Warren Wilson College, and and I write other things. I'm a playwright, and mm-hmm. um, but I yeah, I teach um, British literature, and I'm teaching a vampire class right now, which is fun. Shocking. Yeah. It is shocking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm kind of I'm a little bit in between, all over the place now. I have a three year old, so the past pandemic years have really been wild with yeah. just keeping her in school and keeping a job and keeping that all afloat. So as for right now, I mean, I have a short, like an indie film gig coming up that I'm going to do, I think this week or in a couple of weeks. I think you shoot this week. Shoot yeah. this week. And then there's another shoot date. I'm trying to embrace it, but <laughs> you know, you just always have that idea. Like you are going to study something, you find something you're passionate about you put all the work into it and then you do it. But I just feel so scattered. Like the things I'm into just change regularly. And I'm, I'm just, I guess I'm trying to come to peace with maybe it's okay if I never settle into a career, mm-hmm. you know, sure. if I work a bunch of jobs, cause I just, that's what seems to be making me happy mm-hmm. um, to have that flexibility. And, you know, even with art forms, like going from wanting to focus on writing and then theater and then film acting and some modeling and then i got really into painting i feel like creative expression is always going to be a part of something i do and it very likely won't always or ever generate much of an income so it's always going to be a balance and i really i feel 
good about that because it's what makes me feel like me. Sure. Yeah. I've worked with so many people and talked to so many people that try doing, you know, sort of both trying to maintain the things that made them happy as an artist, but also trying to, you know, maintain a career in some other field that really weren't related. I mean, it's a little different with Jamie, right? I mean, you're teaching and writing. I mean, I do the um, same thing. Yeah, and I, I think, and and I'm aware of how lucky I am right. that I got to do that, that it happened to be my path. Because, yeah, my day job supports, and I teach classes in horror fiction and gothic fiction all the time, so I literally get to go to work and think out loud about the stuff that I'm doing sure, creatively. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, and that's yeah. a really... Um, that's l lucky. Not right. many people get to do that. Exactly. So. Yeah. And that's, and that's, yeah, that's the point I want yeah, to make. Just, just lucky to be able to do that. But what you're doing, Haley, is actually the true essence of the spirit of being an artist. That might be why, you know, um, some don't live very long. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. <laughs> um, you know, no, the fact that, you know, you are maintaining the things that truly make you feel alive, make you feel real. You know, to also be able to do that and to be a mom, you know, and, and especially you're right. I mean, during the pandemic, you know, all of that is just wild. But, you know, I think there's a real shift now that, you know, there are more opportunities that folks can take and even risks that you can take that allow you to be able to just enjoy who you are and what you're doing. It's tricky though, but yeah, just figuring out how to sustain that. Because also, like I realize the position I'm in now, it's like, I feel like I don't really have that work drive to like put in all these hours to like save money. <laughs> and I know that's not like a very uh, mature outlook on it, but- Well, it's not a very capitalist outlook on it. I don't know that capitalist is mature. Um, yeah. yeah. And maybe, you know what, at this one guy the other day at the, the cashier at the store, he was asking me about jobs and stuff. And he was just saying, like, yeah, your generation, like, they just don't have the patience. And, I mean, the, the patience for what? It's like this idea that you need to, like, <laughs> yes. spend all these years kind of being unhappy mm -hmm. to get to a place where then, what, you're financially stable and you can be happy. But but you're too old to enjoy it. But also, yeah. like, <laughs> right, right. just seeing the way the world is like yeah it doesn't feel like the future is really guaranteed oh no that's that's totally yeah because that is totally a let's a, be happy now right we probably saw that in our generation at least two or three times growing up of, of friends of ours parents that you know had good jobs decent jobs got laid off bam or they didn't have this degree or they didn't have that and really having to start over whereas generations after us have kind of i think figured it all out you know, man, we can make lateral moves. We can move anywhere we want to, as long as we're making enough money to keep us alive and that we can enjoy what we need to do and be happy and be alive is just way more important than some future dream that may or may not happen. Well, and that dream was always unsustainable and always kind of a lie. It just sort of fell apart during our generation, right? And and then I think, yeah, yeah, subsequent generations can see it in a way that yeah, we, that could. we didn't, I guess. Yeah. We probably could have if we'd tried. Like Henry Rollins saw it, people like that. Right, the rest right. of us didn't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we we idolized him. We Wait, just weren't getting the message. I don't know. Um, and and he's know. screaming at us, like, "Listen!" And we're like, "No." But just. to me, to me, if to circle it back in, that's the real horror. <laughs> you know, I mean, is this idea that you know I'm going to do everything the right way, everything that that has been prescribed, and I'm going to have this great payoff in the end. And the payoff doesn't come. Yeah, we should do a season of about a corporate layoff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's got to be the scariest thing ever, right? Well, you know, that's what, I mean, when you study horror fiction, that's what it always does. Like, like you know, the Amityville horror is really about bad real estate deals. Yes. <laughs> you know? We bought this incredible house. We sunk all of our money into it. It is haunted as <laughs> Right. And we cannot leave. I mean, that's the subtext of that whole movie. Uh, yeah, you know that that is that is actually so true. I mean, so many of those movies are about somebody who is just determined to do something when all signs are telling, telling you not to, not to do the it. Shining. Right? Yeah, you exactly. know, like, dude, you do not want to go stay at the Overlook in the middle of, of right. nowhere in the middle of winter. You're going to go crazy there. No, I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you are. Right. You know? right. And then you know you think about in almost every single one of there's this arrogance, right? of that particular person the protagonist is so arrogant that he thinks or she thinks that 
you know, she can overcome or he can overcome whatever is coming at them. And it's like, dude, this is so supernatural. No human can overcome this. But yeah, why do you think you can? And I think that too is- That's a very human thing. Right. But we also don't take into account when we see those films, because that's that's one of the jokes, right? But why don't you leave, right? You know, you walk into the house, you hear a voice say, get out. You're like, well, this is I'm gone. But usually in the, the like particularly in a novel, there's a little bit more depth and circumstance as to why, like The Shining, they probably shouldn't have gone to begin with. But, you know, Jack Torrance, it, it is his last chance. He's been fired from all these other jobs right. because he's an alcoholic. He's And, and he makes a big deal out of that when they go. This is our last chance. I have no other option. Right. And so, like, yeah, you could leave, but where are you going to go? That's when it becomes layered, right? That's when it becomes like the story is about you. You are the ghost. Palimpsest is a bi-weekly audio drama about memory, identity, and the things that haunt us. They are celebrating their fifth anniversary this Halloween, and they just wrapped up their fourth season. You can find them wherever you podcast. If you fear nothing you have nothing to lose and i think that's what happens when we get older we start gaining things right you know i've got my children i've got my wife i've got my house i've got our cars i'm also going to be turning 50 in november i'm not in an age where if i lose those things i can just make that back up right and how could you make back up a kid or your wife or something like that but like you know if i lose my car if i lose my house and i'm 20 no big deal. I still got my whole life. I can get another house. I can get another car. You start getting sort of certain age. It's like you lose it. You can't make that up. So we become more fearful of really losing things. Plus the reality of us around us. We're getting old. Our parents are getting even older, right? So there's a reality that, that they're going to be gone. We're going to lose them. We're losing friends. We're losing neighbors. And plus the longer we're alive, the more that the things around us are constantly reminding us that everything is fleeting, that everything you feel like is is safe and everything that you feel like is good and wholesome can turn in a moment. Would anyone have ever thought that they would have seen images of just a crowd of people, a horde of people just going through the Capitol and just trashing the place right there on television? That would have been unimaginable to me. Or just the senseless cruelty that we see with mass shootings and things like that. It was unimaginable. But then you see it really happening and you see it unfold and you see the reactions, the the live reactions of the people who are in those spaces to see that. And you can't help but feel that too. Suddenly that fear becomes very much a part of who we are. Honestly, I wonder if it goes back to 9-11, right? The idea that you could be minding your own business Everything is just a typical normal day. And then boom. I used to not be afraid of being in a crowds of people, but now it's like, okay, what three things can kill me right now? You know, a virus that just shoots through everybody in a pandemic, a terrorist attack or a snake. I mean, it's like, come on. Can I just have a moment with the crowd and not have to worry about dying? And maybe that's the fear right now that we truly kind of have in the back of our minds. You've been listening to Binder, a production of the Columbia Museum of Art. Today's episode was hosted by me, Ray McManus, produced and edited by Drew Barron, with special assistance from Joel Ryan Cook. For more information about CMA exhibitions and programs, visit our website at www.columbiamuseum.org. <laughs> what is the time Ray was afraid? Two thirty, two p.m. <laughs> yeah. Friday, October fourteenth. <laughs> <laughs>